Romans chapter 1 verse 16 for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek we should know it because we've been looking at this verse now for the last uh, couple of Thursday nights and uh, if you remember last week if in particular we looked at just one word from it and that is the word, the key word, I suppose. The key word is the word gospel. So they looked into what the gospel really is. Uh, why isn't Paul ashamed of it? And why shouldn't we be ashamed of it? And we saw that the gospel actually means good news. <laughs> That's what it says. For I am not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. We also saw last week that it is the power of God. It's the gospel that is the power of God. And we saw that it is effective. It achieves things. It brings to us salvation. And then we saw, we asked the question, well, what does salvation really uh, entail? And we saw that it, salvation is that that delivers us from the guilt of sin, from the consequence of sin, from the power of sin, and from the pollution of sin. And then on the positive side, we saw that it reconciles us back to God and restores all that we lost in Adam and more besides. Whoever could think that they would be ashamed of something as amazing as the gospel. There is nothing on earth or in heaven that can ever uh, hold a candle to this, this gospel message that we have in our grasp. Now I want us to go on a little, not a lot, but a little, and I want us to look at a phrase that puts everything into perspective for us. A phrase that, in a way, is bound to sober us up and uh, bring us back down to earth a little bit. Because last week it was positive after positive after positive after positive after positive. But tonight I want us to look at a phrase that is set to divide the opinion of the whole world. And to divide the opinion of the whole world more and more as we progress through time. It's a simple phrase. It's a phrase that every one of us would love to, loves to hear. But it's a phrase that divides rather than unites. And it's simply for everyone who believes. For everyone who believes. And that's what I want us to look at tonight. That little uh, five word phrase. For everyone that believes. You know, you might think that I'm being a little bit overdramatic. He's gone over the top again when I say that this is a phrase that divides the opinion of the whole world. But I would say that at this point in time, within the Christian world, and also outside the Christian world, this is where the battle lay. For everyone who believes. You know, to us, it is a sound that is so sweet. Because here we are in this place tonight simply because we believe. We are called believers. We believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that he is God in the flesh. We believe that we are sinners. And we need to be saved from our sin. Delivered from all those things that I talked about just now. And we, and we believe that it's Christ who has accomplished that for us upon the cross and now sits 
are in heaven interceding on our behalf. We are believers. And I'm going to be honest, I'm proud to be called a believer. I'm thrilled to be called a believer. And I'm thrilled to be a part or among a group of people who, are, who can be referred to as believers. But we're not all believers. Not everyone is a believer. You know, in 2011, a man by the name of Rob Bell, the pastor of a mega church in America, in Michigan, in America, called Mars Hill Bible Church. And listen to the title of his church. Mars Hill Bible Church. You know, it throws us all the way back to Acts. When Paul stood up and introduced God to the people who didn't know him. And in fact, he introduces Jesus as the God that the people didn't know. It's a wonderful title for a mega church. But he wrote a book. A book was called Love Wins. Now, I don't know if anyone of you have read it. Right? I, don't, I haven't read it, I must be honest, but I know the gist of it. And this is what he said afterwards, or the gist of what he said after he wrote it. He wrote a book called Love Wins, and it led to a fallout with his congregation with over 3,000 people leaving. Who <laughs> <laughs> <Poor> was so? <laughs> huh? <coughs> it's one of those little churches over in America. And it caused him, in his words, to say, to search for a more forgiving faith. One that could keep pace with the rising waterline of culture. In the book, he questioned the existence of hell and the evangelical teaching that only those who believe in Jesus Christ are going to heaven. That's what this book was about. In the book, he questioned the existence of hell and the evangelical teaching that only those who believe in Jesus Christ are going to heaven. Now I wonder where on earth these extreme fundamentalist evangelicals got this idea from that only those who believe in Jesus Christ will actually accompany him throughout eternity. Well, I think that our text tonight gives us a little clue where these evangelicals got it from. They got it from the Bible. The Bible. The Bible is guilty of bringing evangelicals to an understanding that only believers in Jesus Christ will accompany him through eternity. The Bible is where we are told that heaven is for those who believe. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. For who? For everyone who believes. Even if there are any doubters in this gathering tonight, let's ask Jesus what he thinks. From John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now we've got to agree with me, it's not rocket science. Especially when we see that Rob Bell, who founded a church, 
named this church Mars Hill Bible Church and yet its main theme is being denied now if he called it Mars Hill Church or if better still if he called it Rob Bell's Place then yes we can understand how we come to the place where the Bible is unimportant or irrelevant and then he not it is the authority you see when you question a doctrine that is so plainly recorded in the scripture then you become the authority and not the word of God and therefore it's the gospel according to you or in this case the gospel according to Rob Bell that is the authority of that church but to claim the authority of the Bible and then to deny its main and most simple teaching is difficult to understand I can't understand it and I've got to be honest with you I don't want to be part of a faith that keeps pace with the rising waterline of culture I was honest I don't want to keep pace with the culture that is in the world I refer you to a book that I've recommended many times from this pulpit it's a book by a man called John Stott we all probably know John Stott and it concerns the Sermon on the Mount and its subtitle is this The Christian Counterculture The Christian Counterculture It's strange how some Christians want to keep pace with culture and some Christians want to counter culture You know, I suppose it's true to say that we are not here to uh, reflect the culture of our day and to move on with it we are here to speak into it with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and renew it and regain it for Jesus Christ. That's our mandate. Not to keep up with it and be a part of it, but to speak into it and regain it for, for Christ's glory. You know, uh, there's one little verse in the Bible what that would describe just in one sentence the meaning of the word culture the world's culture this culture that is being talked about in this quote and this is the verse then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually that was the culture of the days of Noah now we, we, this man wants us to keep pace with the rising tide. Strange that he's used that phrase. The rising tide of culture. Because you see Jesus brings it right up to date. When he see, says something quite similar. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. You know I believe that we are very close to the days of the Son of Man. And therefore the culture of Noah's day which God spilled out of his mouth is the same culture in our day which is ripening for the same judgment or a similar judgment from God. So I don't want to be a part of a faith that keeps pace with culture. I want to be a part of a faith that speaks into culture and regains it for the glory of Christ. Now if the Bible... Now here is the, the sort of the crux of the matter in, in our ministry tonight. If the Bible is your authority, then you will agree with what I just said. 
But of course, if anything else comes first in your estimation, then nothing could be further from the truth. But the words of Jesus ring out for us. Whoever believes, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And of course, that's the, the greatest, our master saying those things. And so do the words of his greatest apostle, you, for everyone who believes. But why is that word, why does that word have to appear in these two verses? Why? Why couldn't we just say it's for everyone? Wouldn't that be wonderful? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that everyone should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God to the salvation of everyone. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. To the Greek. Wouldn't it be a more palatable message to bring to this world at last. Wouldn't it be less of a message to be ashamed of? Who would be ashamed of something that was so inoffensive? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it doesn't offend anybody. Because it doesn't separate anybody off. Because it doesn't deny anyone. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because, it, because it's for whoever. Everyone. Without distinction. Or without prerequisite. That would be so much easier for us as Christians to live in a world with that message to bring. That whoever you are, you are embraced by the eternal love of God. And there is a place in heaven being pre prepared for you right now. But Paul, nor indeed does Jesus say that. They put this little word believe in. This little word believe and it changes everything changes every why have we got to put that word believe it but let me tell you why if we left out that offending word do you know what it would do straight away it would make the gospel absolutely redundant superfluous to anything else upon the upon the earth what need what point what need of calling people to faith commanding every man everywhere to repent if their eternal welfare did not depend upon faith or repentance, what would be the point of preaching for a verdict if that verdict has no impact on their eternal well-being, has no out uh, effect upon the outcome of their life, that they will spend eternity with Christ, even if they don't believe in Him, they don't trust Him, they don't even know Him, if they spurn Him, if they ridicule him, if they blaspheme him, then yes, there is still a place available for you. What would be the point of preaching the gospel, of calling people to faith, of preaching for a verdict where none of those things will have any impact at all upon the people who would listen? Why would God want the gospel to be preached into every nation on the earth before he comes the second time. What's the point? You know Paul says. Him we preach. Christ we preach. Warning every man. And teaching every man. In all wisdom. That we may present every man. Perfect in Christ Jesus. What are we warning people about? 
Why are we warning people if love wins? If it makes no difference who you are, where you are, what you are, why are we warning people if everyone is guaranteed, whether believer or not, to spend eternity with Christ? Why do we warn? Why do we teach? Why are we going to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus when it means nothing in the grand scheme of things? Paul again in 2 Corinthians says, Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of life, of death, leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life, leading to life. You can you believe the awesome responsibility that Christ has placed on us. That we are here in every place, that means at all times, to be the fragrance of Christ and to bring the knowledge of Christ into every circumstance. That's incredible. That's a little bit too much for, for me to sort of contemplate. But my life is to be spent now in spreading the knowledge of Christ to those who are around. But not only that, but there is an outcome of this spreading that we've been called to do. You know, it's called an aroma, a smell, an odour, something that permeates the society that we belong to or the actual space that we inhabit. It's seen, it says, like the aroma of life. You know, I thank God for those that when they hear the voice of the gospel that comes from me, they are thrilled and they worship God and some come to Christ and receive Him as their Saviour. And for them, it is the aroma of life that I am spreading because they have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and have come to a knowledge of salvation through Him and the sacrifice that He made. But to others, to others, that same aroma becomes the aroma of death, leading to death. It's for those who have rejected the message that God has given to them through me, that God has given to them through you. And the aroma um, sort of re rebels or repels them. And they resent the message that we bring. Something separates. Something separates. There's a division of opinion. When I walk into a room, there's a division of an opinion. When you walk into a room, there's a division of an opinion. There's an aroma of life that brings life. There's an aroma of death that brings death. What's it? What is the thing that separates them? For everyone who believes. That's the difference. It's only those who believe will receive the aroma of life unto life. See, if we left out the word believe, it makes the gospel superfluous, redundant. Why preach it if it has no impact on anyone? You know, if we left out that offending word, it would make the cross foolishness and the wisdom of God a matter of scorn. You know, even today, we have the scriptures, the completed canon of scripture you know and if there is one doctrine 
but is in there plain to see. You know, I can remember um, when we were doing the doctrine of the of the scriptures on a Thursday night in starting from scratch. It was the, the first uh, starting from scratch course that we ever did. And there was one word uh, that was um, a, a new word to me. I found, I know I discovered it as I was studying the doctrine of scriptures. And it's the word purposeuity. Uh, it is a big word, Rob. Do anybody know what it means? You should know because I did describe it to you. Uh, it was about nine years ago, right? Purposeuity. Purposeuity means something that is plain to see. Something that is plain to see. You know, and the doctrine of the atonement in the scriptures is actually the plainest doctrine of them all. You know, if you study the word of God, you have to come to the conclusion that Christ's sacrifice upon the cross was a sacrifice for our sins. Was an atonement for our sins. There is no getting away from it. It is the plainest thing, doctrine in the whole of the scriptures. And yet with that completely formed doctrine of the atonement set out for us in these scriptures, there are still people who are able to postpone on the wisdom and yes even the integrity of God the Father in sending his only son to suffer upon the cross. You know, we have heard in recent years um, terms that come from established pastors, preachers of what we thought was the gospel, who refer to the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross as cosmic child abuse. You know, in years gone by, the, the sort of the phrase that I was brought up with in this context was that Christianity is nothing but a slaughterhouse religion. <coughs> there are others that complete, uh, completely ridicule the God who exacts such punishment upon his son. You know, when you sort of put those phrases, those modern day phrases that have popped up into our vocabulary against the, uh, the scriptures then we would find that they are diametrically opposed if you know the scriptures to be the word of God if they are you with authority if you read them without any bias whatsoever then you will come to the conclusion that God sent his son to die in our room and in our stead to take upon himself the sins of the whole world and die as an atoning sacrifice for sin there if you don't take the word of God as your authority, or if you read it with a terrible bias, you will think that God is a crackpot because he has sent this. And in fact, people call him, these type of people that I've talked about tonight, call him the ogre, the cosmic ogre of history. Now that's the two sides of the coin. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech. Or a wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was in weakness, I was with you in weakness, in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with pervasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, in order that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What did I say was the power of God last week? It is the gospel 
That is the power of God. So our faith is not in the wisdom of men. However brainy and educated and um, upright these men are. My faith is not in their wisdom. My faith is in the power of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that tells me that Christ died on the cross as an atonement for my sin. No, we see in our world today the wisdom of men. And yet at the same time, what are we seeing? The rapid growth of the superstition of men. You know, it's amazing how superstitious this country of ours has become over this last 50 years. You know, you go back 50 years and say that today's society would be like it is and they laugh in your face. Because we dealt with superstition years ago. The Bible destroyed superstition years ago because now we believe that there's a God in heaven. Not a cat that goes under a ladder, but a God in heaven who keeps us with his providence. But what have we done? We've got rid of him. We've got rid of the God who is the God of providence. And we now have all types of gods. And what has come back? Superstition. Superstition is on a, a huge scale. You know what? You can't have them both. <coughs> if God comes, superstition goes. You know, I don't go crossing my fingers. I don't, I'm not afraid to walk under a ladder. I don't sort of pull my hair up because a black cat and run past me. I'm not afraid to walk past somebody on the stairs. You know, when I was working in um, Nazareth, I was to back on the stairs. Uh, if they were long stairs, they were like these. So it would take me a good 20 minutes to back on the stairs. And there would be people standing on the bottom for 20 minutes waiting for me to come down. And I'd say, where are you coming out? Come I can't cross you on the stairs. So why not go? I can't cross you on the stairs. Superstition. Where does it come from? It comes from the ejecting of God. When he goes, all these pagan things will return. And we've seen it, I said last week. It's almost like in the gospel came to you, look, the dust went up in the air. But now, slowly but surely, as the, the word of God is being sidetracked, all this dust of paganism is sort of making its way down. We have the wisdom of men, which is the superstition of men, the superficiality of men. You know, when we talk about men, so that, that we're all on the same road and we're the same God, Allah and Jehovah are the same people. And yet Allah is adamant that he hasn't got a son. But Jehovah says, this is my beloved son. You know, and the people's belief is so superficial that they don't look into anything. Because Christianity is diametrically opposed to any other faith and religion that exists in the world today. And yet they lump us all in together and superficially we follow this light that's in front of us. So we have the wisdom of men which brings the superstition and the superficiality and of course the sentimentality. Oh, God wouldn't do that to me. My God wouldn't do that. He wouldn't do this. He wouldn't send people to hell. He wouldn't destroy people in the flood. Of course he wouldn't. Of course he wouldn't. But according to the Bible, yes. You know, and these are the things that are taking precedence over the word of God in our day. Who would serve a God would so abuse his son for no apparent reason. Who would trust a God whose actions would be considered utter folly if love wins anyway? Can you see the immense importance 
that is placed on the knowledge of God's word. Do you know what he did last year? We laboured through 1 John on a Thursday night. And at one point in our proceedings, we came across these words. And to me, they say it all. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The propitiation for our sins. In other words, he stood between us and the wrath of God. He stood between us and the wrath of God and he took it all upon himself. That's what the Bible is so plain in telling us. You know, and I'm glad, so very, very glad that I was brought up in a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church which put Christ and Him crucified at the centre of everything they did and everything they said. And I would say tonight without any reservations whatsoever that the people who come to this fellowship are equally blessed that the cross is central to all the teaching and the practices that are carried out within these four walls. I thank God I went to the bush and I thank God I'm a part of this fellowship because I would hate to be a part of a fellowship where the main doctrine of atonement is put this question in a way that it's being today. You know, if he left the word believe out, this offensive word believe, out of this term, this verse, then the cross would be foolishness and the wisdom of God a matter of scorn. But if he left out that offending word, it would make the flood a holocaust. A holocaust. You see, the flood, without this word believe in our text tonight, would be this, the um, greatest monstrosity and most unrighteous act of history for which God should be utterly ashamed and forever sorry. The flood. The flood. We just don't like the flood. The world doesn't like the flood. Uh, they don't mind a little, nice little boat with a giraffe sticking out of the roof. You know, and a nipo eating grass on the and everybody in bright clothes and uh, laughing. They don't mind that. As long as we tell the Sunday school children that this is what the flood was all about, that's great. But the flood, we don't like the flood. Now even with the glaring evidence of the flood, making up most of the terrain of this planet, terrain that could never have been there unless... Of a, a, unless there was a worldwide flood we still deny that it ever happened the world denies that it ever happened you see the whole of evolution is designed to negate the existence of the flood I was watching David Attenborough this week of course uh, he's found, they found this huge um, dinosaur thank you Rob uh, it is the biggest thing that they've ever seen. I think it's three bus, bus uh, double-decker buses, right? and it's about 
10 or 12 decker buses long. You imagine that walking towards it. You know, and um, the eggs, they found the eggs of it. Or the, the egg is the size of, of a football, and the actual fully grown is the, half the size of a football field. So you can imagine what this monster must have looked like, you know, and uh, the thigh bone was twice as big as David Attenborough. And um, here he is. And of course, he is the most respected man on the television. And uh, he told us on Sunday when I watched this that this uh, animal died out 101.3 million years ago. 101.3 million years ago. Why did he say that? Why did he tell us that the animal died 101.3 million years ago? I tell you why he told us. He told us that to be fit the flood. That's the only reason why he told us that. It is to be filled the flood. Charles Lyell, the father of the millions of years theory that is so prevalent today, set out to free science from the clutches of Moses. Poor old Moses, what has he got to do with it? But Charles Lyell wanted to uh, discredit Moses because of course Jesus said if they listened to Moses, they'd listen to me. So get rid of Moses, you get rid of Christ. What else did Moses do? He wrote about the flood. So if we can get rid of Moses, we can get rid of the flood and Jesus in one foul swoop. The only way to get rid of Moses and the flood and Jesus is to say that this earth is 4.6 billion years old. And that's all he did was say it and everyone has believed him. It's incredible. It's an incredible uh, deception that has taken place over the last 150 years. Let me ask the question, why are, why are people afraid of the flood? Why can't they accept the flood? And there's only one word, one word that will bring us the answer. And the word is judgment. Judgment. That's why the flood is so maligned today, because it speaks of the judgment of God. And people don't like the concept of the judgment of God. I've already referred to uh, the scripture that tells us why the flood. It's because of the sin of men. But it bears repeating tonight. And then I'm going to say it again. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Judgment. You ask for Noah, mercy triumphed over judgment. You know, we can be so grateful for that. It's the only reason why we are here tonight, is because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and mercy for him triumphed over judgment, and he was given the privilege of replenishing the earth. So why are we so afraid to admit the flood? Surely that was 4,000 years ago. That's got nothing at all to do with us. That's irrelevant. Why are we afraid to admit the, f the flood when we are 
in this modern era that we belong to? Well, Peter's got an opinion on that. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now that brings it all a little bit closer. It brings it all a little bit closer to home. A little bit more personal. The same God who judged the earth with water some 4,000 years ago will again judge it, not this time with water, but this time with fire. No, it's no wonder these people don't want to admit to the flood because in doing so, they will have to live in fear of the fire. Because if God judged by water, like he said he did, which, which is evidenced all over the world, then the next thing to happen is that God will judge by fire. You know, and of course we all know that if we believe it hard enough, and if we believe it long enough, and if we say it strong enough, then it won't happen. There was no flood. There couldn't have been a flood. There's other reasons why the earth is like this. Don't believe in the flood. That was all mumbo jumbo. See, the world has embraced that teaching. But the problem is, as much we can believe it as much as we want to, for as long as we want to, we can speak it for as strong as we want to, nothing will change. The truth remains that 4,000 years ago, God destroyed this earth with a flood. <coughs> And in moments time, you're going to destroy it with fire. And whatever you say, and whatever you believe, and whatever you think, and whatever you preach, that will never change. Because it's God's word that is the authority. It's God's word that will make it happen. But you see, that's how the heart of man works. If you believe long enough, and strong enough, and if we say it loud enough, it didn't happen. Listen, if we went on a few verses in chapter 1 of Romans, we would see that exact a policy. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes were clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Do you know who admitted that? Richard Dawkins. When I see creation, I see the handiwork of a creator. And I want to bow down and worship him. And then I pull myself back and say there was no creator. But his initial response to creation is to glorify the creator. That's what it says. His eternal power and Godhead are plainly seen by what he's made. So they are without excuse, Jesus, uh, Paul says. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. If we don't retain Him in our knowledge, He'll disappear. He'll go. 
God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fit in. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that's the world. That's not us, that's the world. Knowing the righteous judgment of God. These people know that God is righteous. They know that He judges sinfulness. Why? Because they've seen it in the flood. It's written in the stones that we stand on. They know it. Knowing the righteousness, righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do they do the same things, but they also approve of all those who practice it. Together, mankind knows who God is, what He is, what He does, what offends Him, and what consequences it will bring. And yet they put that into one compartment of their mind, marked Room 101, and they get on with life as if He never existed. Do you think that God has an apology to make? Because of the flood? Do you think that it should be forever ashamed? Well, let me tell you where I stand. I'm thinking, thank God for His grace. For the grace that He poured upon Noah and his family. Did Noah deserve it? Of course he didn't. He was a sinner just like you and me. But he believed. And that's what Hebrews chapter 11 tells us. That he believed. He was the only one. You know what I was talking to Nigel. I don't know if he mentioned this on Sunday night. Because I had Nigel's sermon all the way home last Sunday night in the car. He told me every point. And we talked about Noah. And he says, do you think his wife ever doubted? And of course I suppose his wife. His wife. I expect his children doubted. But Noah. I, I wonder whether Noah doubted. But he believed. Because his belief was worked out in his actions. He built an ark. What fool would have built an ark in the middle of nowhere when they'd never seen rain before or floods? But Noah did. He didn't deserve the grace of God. But God poured it upon him. And he believed. And of course, as we know with Abraham, God accounts that for righteousness. That's why you and I are here tonight. Not because we've done anything great. Not because we're better than anybody else outside. It's because we believed. We believed. Thank God for Noah. He believed and was saved from the wrath of God. Those that didn't, perished. Just like John 3.16 says. Whoever believes on him should not perish. But have everlasting life. Noah, you believed on him and you didn't perish. But oh, how many didn't believe and perished outside of the hour? You know, when we look around our society today, you know, we are but an handful of people in the presence of God. I know there are other places like this that preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are hordes of believers here, there, and everywhere. But you see, when you put this group into this village, how many are perishing? You know, it's incredible. It's incredible to think that there are so many people who are still outside the fold and family of Jesus Christ. Noah believed that he was saved. Those that didn't perished. You know, I said at the beginning that this word believe will ultimately divide the world into two. Was I being overdramatic? 
Or was I understanding the case? You know, Jesus speaks uh, yeah, as a, order about the time of separation. He calls it the sheep and the goats, the tares and the wheat, the righteous and the unrighteous, the believer and the unbeliever. And you know, unfortunately, in one way, that is the gospel message. And that's why we come back to our text. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. But it is the power of God to the saving of all those who believe. Who believe. You know, there was an, a, a question asked, a very intense question, once posed. Sir, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's answer was as simple as you can get. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You say, oh, what about all those people out there? Believe. You see, they have the same message preached to them as we've had preached to us. It's our responsibility. The onus is upon us to get that message out to as many people as possible. But the message is abroad. You know, this, this valley of ours has been blessed with men and women who have traversed these streets and preached the gospel in every kind of way. And here we are, 12 of us, in Esther gathered together to listen to his word. 12 people that have responded to the gospel and believed the claims of Christ and have found themselves with the gift of eternal life and the hope of eternity with Christ burning in their hearts. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, but it is the power of God to those, to the saving of those who believe. Pray that we will always stand on that. And we will always understand that. So that preaching, the gospel, won't be redundant at all. That the cross won't be foolishness. That the, the wisdom of God won't be scorned. That the Holocaust won't be an unrighteous act. But God will receive glory because of his salvation plan. Not wanting any to perish, he says, but all to come to repentance. And I pray that we would see that in our day, in our time, in this place, that we would see people repenting before the throne of God, coming to an understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We're going to sing Amazing Grace to finish because, you see, that sums up the whole of this gospel message, both for Noah 4,000 years ago, for us here in 2016, and for whatever year that fire will come, there will be those who will be saved out of it by the amazing grace of God.